there's often a shift in the middle of a New Testament letter where the content goes from doctrinal and somewhat theoretical, perhaps, to practical and applicational. And once that corner is turned, it can sometimes feel as though the writer has begun to press pretty firmly into issues in our lives that maybe hit a little close to home. Perhaps you've heard someone say, when the points of a preacher's sermon start to feel more personally relevant to someone, well, now you've quit preaching and gone to meddling. Well, we've arrived at that corner in the book of Galatians, uh, and I feel I should warn you, the next couple sermons might feel a little bit like meddling. But two reassurances I'd, I'd give you in that. Number one, the Holy Spirit is meddling in my life just as much as he intends to meddle in yours through these verses, so I'm not exempt to these charges at all. And secondly, I don't aim my shots any closer to home than I think uh, the text is aiming. So I hope you'll uh, bear with me as we walk through these verses over the next couple of weeks. Just a few uh, weeks left, three Sundays, Lord willing, uh, before we complete the book of Galatians. So last week, we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 5. Go ahead and grab a Bible, if you haven't already, and turn to Galatians 5. And in the first 12 verses, Paul urged the Galatians to hold on to the freedom they have in Christ. He said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, there's an objective reality. Christians have been set free by Christ, but then there's sometimes a gap between our objective reality and our lived experience. Sometimes we don't live as free as we really are. And so in effect, Paul says, remember what Christ has accomplished for you and then don't lose your freedom. Hold on to it. Don't forget it. But it turns out there's another ditch that we can fall into regarding our freedom in Christ. One is to lose our freedom, that is by not living as though it's true, and the other one that he's going to introduce us to is misusing our freedom. We're going to read at the start just three verses, verses 13 through 15 of Galatians 5. We're going to, uh, by the Lord willing, make it all the way through this chapter today. But to begin, just these first three verses. Look at Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The first section of these verses and really throughout this passage, you'll see a contrast between the spirit and the flesh. The spirit of God and our flesh. He tells us in that first verse, verse 13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't lose your freedom, chapter 5, verse 1, and don't misuse your freedom, chapter 5, verse 13. Now, when he says don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, he's using language that's common in the New Testament, not speaking of the physical body that we live in as though bodies are somehow bad or 
physical matter is somehow evil. That's not Christian theology at all. He's not speaking of just physical embodiment. He is speaking, when he uses the word the flesh, of the fallen human nature that is inclined towards sin and perversion of God's will. All human beings since the fall in the Garden of Eden have experienced it and are indeed born with it. So when he says don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, he's speaking of our inclinations towards sin. He's speaking of indulging in desires and passions and pursuits that are ungodly, that are born not of our new nature in Christ, but of our old fallen nature as sinners. See, Christians also have another nature, a new nature that's being renewed in Christ. When the Spirit of God regenerates somebody, brings new life, new birth into a sinner's soul, he imparts a new nature with new desires. So suddenly there's an interest in an inclination toward the things of God and toward pleasing God and toward honoring him. And so we should use our freedom not for opportunities for the flesh, that is to to lean into and find excuse for that old sin nature, but indeed to love others. So how might we be inclined to misuse our freedom in this way? How might someone, having read through Paul's letter to the Galatians to this point, make opportunity for the flesh? He might say, well, man, if salvation is all about what God has already done in Christ, and it's appropriated to us simply by faith and not by works of the law, then I guess it doesn't matter how we live, right? We might say, man, I could do whatever I please, and God's going to forgive me anyway. So you can err on the side of law, or you can err on the side of license. That is, we might regard the grace of God in the gospel as a license to sin. That would be an abuse of our freedom in Christ. Will God forgive you when you sin? Of course he will. Is new life in Christ yours even when you stumble and fall? Of course it is. That's what it means that you're free in Christ. But does that mean that we should, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 6, that we should go on sinning in order that grace might increase? Well, the more I sin, the more grace I get. So I'm actually glorifying God's grace by sinning with impunity. Of course not. His answer there is, may it never be. That would be an abuse of our freedom in Christ. So you are free in Christ, but don't use your freedom as an excuse to indulge the distorted desires of your sinful nature. Don't view your Christian freedom as a license to sin. And if your attitude towards sin is like that, you may be demonstrating that there's a lack of true faith in your heart to begin with. Maybe you haven't really grasped what God has done for you in the gospel. So he goes on to say, and we're going to talk more in detail about what he means by this loving, uh, loving and serving one another. But he goes on to say in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's summarizing Jesus, of course. He said the very same thing. The whole, on this, all the law and the prophets hang. Love, 
the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is just quoting Jesus here, saying that all of the law is summarized by love your neighbor. But he's just spent four chapters, maybe four and a half chapters, telling us we don't need to obey the law in order to be saved. And now he tells us that we have to obey the law that's summarized in this line, that that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. So you might think, well, which is it, Paul? Are we obligated to obey the law or are we not? You've been saying that we're not obligated. We're free from the law. We're no longer under the law. We're under Christ. We're no longer slaves. We're sons. And now you're saying serve one another, love one another, because this fulfills the law. So what does that mean? Well, I think the answer to that is in one sense, we aren't obligated to obey the law. And in another sense, we are obligated to obey the law. We're no longer obligated to obey, the, to obey the law in order to obtain a righteous standing. And that's been Paul's point all along. When he says that, uh, when he said a few verses back that circumcision or uncircumcision don't count for anything, it's only faith working through love. What he's saying is, it's not the law itself that's bad, it's an approach to law keeping that is predicated on we're going to try to earn God's favor. We're going to try to obtain God's blessing and a relationship and a standing with him by our obedience to the law. That is what he has categorically, emphatically, and passionately rejected throughout this letter. So if you're asking, are we obligated to obey the law of God in order to be saved? The answer is an emphatic no. No one is justified by works of the law but through faith in Christ. That's the thesis of the book of Galatians. But there is another sense in which we are obligated to obey the law, and this is where this turning of a corner could feel a little bit awkward. Wow, it looks like he's saying something different. We are obligated to obey the word of God, the commands of God, as a living out of our new identity in Christ. We're not pursuing law-keeping and obedience because we want to earn God's favor by it. We pursue obedience to God's commands and God's word because it's who we are now. Because we live from a new place, a new identity, a new strength. And we have a new purpose, no longer to live for ourselves, but to live for God and his glory. And so are we obligated to obey the law? Not in order to obtain God's blessing and salvation, but as the way of life of a follower of Christ, yes. We do have obligations to follow his commands. When he said that circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for nothing but faith working through love, what he means is the grace of God that's poured out on us through faith in Christ works its way out in hearts and acts of love toward others. That's what he meant back in chapter 5, verse 6. And he's saying something very similar to that here. We are very clear by now, if you've been with us at all in this series in Galatians, that obeying God's commands will not justify anyone before him. There will be no sinner who stands in the presence of God who gets to point at his spiritual resume and boast about all the great things he did. That doesn't carry any water with anyone. But obedience to his commands is the road on which he calls us to walk as his people. The difference is that our obedience is not from slavish fear, but from glad submission. Delight in your freedom in Christ 
and the clean conscience that he's given you by his grace. But don't neglect his commands. I think this is an exhortation that these verses would point us toward. Don't abandon obedience to his word. Remember Jesus himself in what we call the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the next thing he says? And teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Observe doesn't mean look at. It means follow. Teach disciples to obey my commands. That's what Christ says discipleship is all about. It's about a growing uh, sense of Christ's authority in our lives and a yielding of our rights and our will to his, for his sake. But oh, what a difference a gospel mindset makes. Your obedience to God's word must not be from a slavish fear, a frenzied effort to earn God's approval or acceptance, but it should flow from a heart that's so glad in Christ that its deepest desire is to please the Savior. That's where Christian obedience comes from. Not because we need to earn our place with God or measure up or keep our place at the table, but because we desire to honor and please our Father who has welcomed us as his children. Oh, but we don't always desire this, do we? That's easy, that's easy to say. Well, all you got to do is desire the things of God and really want his honor more than you want your own uh, you know, comfort or, or pleasure or whatever. But it's not so easy. It's not always the case, is it? We are conflicted creatures, are we not? And that's what Paul addresses in the next section. So we're going to read, beginning in verse 16, I'll read all the way down through the end of this chapter. So verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We don't always desire the things of God because there's a war going on within us all the time. 
He tells us in verse 16 very simply, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he expands on why that's the case in the next couple verses. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to one another to keep you from doing what you want to do. In other words, your new nature that's been born again by the Holy Spirit, desires the things of God. It desires to honor Him. It desires to live in obedience to His Word and in honor of Christ. But you've got this stubborn, flesh-indulgent, sinful longing that's hanging on, and it is actually at war against your new nature that desires the things of God. So he says very plainly, you cannot fulfill both sets of desires at the same time. There's no compromise to be made. I'll obey the spirit a little bit here, I'll obey the flesh a little bit here, and maybe it'll all come out in the wash. You can't fulfill both sets of desires because they are diametrically opposed, which means you actually want things that are against what God wants for you. You actually desire things and sights, and sounds, and relationships, and experiences that are against the Spirit of God, and that are enemies of what He is trying to do in sanctifying you, in bringing holiness into your life. Do you ever feel a little crazy trying to live life as a Christian? Do you ever feel like one day you're living well, making wise decisions, pursuing God, and then the next day, you feel distant from him. You don't make time for spiritual things. You find yourself falling back into old habits and patterns of sin. You think, what is wrong with me? Am I crazy? Well, here's why. You have two natures within you that are at war with one another. That's why you feel crazy when you're trying to live the Christian life. And when we're indulging the desires of the flesh, we're not, what, walking by the Spirit. You either walk by the Spirit or you walk by the flesh. And your desires that are against the Spirit are actually against your very soul. This sounds a lot like what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11. He calls us to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The things you want are actually bad for you. You sometimes crave and long for, with uncontrollable desire, stuff that will kill you. That is crazy right there. But that's where we all live. That is the reality of life as a sinner in a fallen world who's indwelt by the Spirit, and now we have conflicting desires. Listen, if you didn't have the Spirit of God in you, this would be so much easier, wouldn't it? If you didn't have a new set of desires that wanted to please and honor God, oh my goodness, life would be a cakewalk. Just do whatever you want. Indulge every fleshly passion you've got. It'll be a blast for a while. But the pleasures of sin are fleeting. They don't last. And they lead ultimately to death and eternal destruction. It's not for your good. It's for your destruction and damnation. But we long for it anyway. Because we have the Spirit of God in us, because we're now sons of God and the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, we no longer are satisfied with the stuff that our flesh desires. 
even while sometimes we give right into it. Even though sometimes we live like that's the most important thing. Your desires actually conspire against you for your destruction. And if your desire to sin is actually trying to destroy you, then are God's commands oppressive or are they kind? Are they mean or are they merciful? If he calls us away from desires that will kill us, he is not oppressive and mean. He is kind and merciful to give us commands in his word. Friends, any command of God's word that pushes against your sinful flesh and calls you to curb its influence in your life is actually a gift of his grace to you. This is how we ought to regard the law of God in the life of a Christian. Not that his commands are oppressive and burdensome, but that they are gifts of grace because he knows if we give our flesh what it wants, it will kill us. Do not despise the commands of God in his word. Cling to them. Desire them. Plead with him that your heart would learn to long for obedience to him and the fruit of righteousness more than it desires the rotten fruit of sin. There's an old hymn that says, Blessed are the eyes that see him. Blessed the ears that hear his voice. Blessed are the souls that trust him and in him alone rejoice. His commandments then become their happy choice. Friends, the commands of God are for our good and indeed for our joy. So there's a war within us. We need to walk by the Spirit in order not to gratify the desires of the flesh. What do the flesh and the spirit look like? What does life in the flesh look like? What does life by the spirit look like? Well, he shows us what it looks like in two lengthy lists in verses 19 through 23. Don't you love these lists when they come in the Bible? Vice lists are always fun. Virtue lists come right after it. He begins with the works of the flesh. And I want you to notice the difference between works and fruit. He speaks of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Because the desires of the flesh are, lead to actions, sinful actions of brokenness and perversion. And he says, they're evident. And he gives us this big, long list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Sensuality is sort of a being slave to every appetite that you have. Being led by your senses. Idolatry, sorcery, those I think he probably actually has in view occult and witchcraft and pagan uh, idol worship sorts of practices. Remember, he's writing to a Gentile audience in a very pagan culture. But there are ways that we might lean into those things in what seem to be more subtle or harmless ways. Enmity, being at odds, being at en enemies with one another. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, then we get these kind of party things, drunkenness and orgies, right? We just let ourselves go. We're under the control of some substance, and we're hanging out and having a ball with people who are doing the same thing. These are works of the flesh. These are things that come naturally to sinners. This is what we naturally want. Our innate desires, apart from God's intervention, are right at home in this list of vices. That sounds like fun, you might even be thinking privately to yourself. You would never say that out loud, probably. 
But you probably wouldn't be alone if you're thinking it. But then he gives us a stark warning about this. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that doesn't mean that when you stumble into sin, you've lost your footing and you're no longer in the grip of God's grace. The rest of Galatians make no sense if that's what he's saying. He's talking about a habit, a pattern of pursuing sin without regard for its consequences, without regard for how it affects our relationship with God or with others. If we ongoingly pursue sin without remorse, without repentance, without confession, we demonstrate that perhaps we never belong to Him in the first place. Apart from redemption in Christ, the works, the acts of the flesh are storing up for you God's wrath, which will be endured for all eternity by those who will not repent. So let me take this opportunity to say, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, please don't delay. Acknowledge the fallen desires within your heart that work themselves out and these vices and ask God to show you mercy because of Jesus' death on the cross in your place. Sinners can repent and trust in Christ and be saved through the power of the Spirit. So those are the works of the flesh, this list of vices. And then he goes on to give the contrast. If that's what life in the flesh looks like, what does life in the Spirit look like? And he gives us in verses 22 and 23 the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a coconut. If you want to be a coconut, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit. Anybody else know that song? All right. These are things that are not inherent to our fallen sinful natures, but that belong to our new born-again natures empowered by the Spirit. Look at this list again. Verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says, against such things there is no law. A bit of a play on words there. If you're, under, if you're living by the flesh, you're under the law. If you're living by the Spirit, there is no law against those virtues. In other words, when he calls these things the fruit of the Spirit, and he implies that they're not innate to our fallen nature, but they belong to the Spirit and the new nature he gives us, what he's saying is these virtues aren't things that you can produce on your own. So it would be really stupid of me to say to you, based on this passage, go and be a more loving person. Go and be at peace and don't be anxious about stuff. Be more self-controlled this week. That wouldn't help you. It would just pile more burdens upon your back that you'd probably feel guilty about when you stumble. These are virtues that must be produced by the Holy Spirit's living, acting work within us. He cultivates the fruit. He builds these virtues into our lives in increasing measure as we follow Christ and submit to his word. And please note, it's not fruits of the Spirit. You don't get to pick and choose which fruit of the Spirit grows in your life and which doesn't. 
well, I'm pretty good at love and pretty good at peace, but I'm not very gentle. I'm just, that's just how I am. I'm just not a very gentle person. If the Spirit of God is in your life, all of these virtues should be present and growing because it's the character of Christ that is growing in you by His Spirit. Two quick words of application concerning the fruit of the Spirit before we turn to one broader uh, consideration. First of all, fruit grows when it's properly fed. Feed your spirit. Invest in your soul. Participate weekly in the church's worship and ordinances. Pray and read God's word. Be involved in discipling relationships in the church. Don't expect magic spiritual growth if you will not give yourself to the means of grace that God's provided you. If you desire to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life, you have to give yourselves to the means of His grace whereby those things grow. Feed those desires. Secondly, fruit grows gradually. It doesn't happen overnight. Any gardeners in here probably recognize it can be frustratingly slow for something useful to actually grow on the vine. And so what that calls us to is patience. Give yourself some time. Don't expect overnight transformation, but observe incremental growth by examining your spiritual life over months or even years. Sometimes when people say, how are you growing in your faith? That's hard to answer in the moment. But if I look back five years ago, I might go, oh, I can see ways that God has grown me. I can see fruit of his spirit in my life over that time that I maybe wasn't aware of while it was growing, but I can see the difference now. So give yourself time, be patient, and pray that the Lord would cultivate the growth of this fruit in your life. Now, the final thing I want you to see and consider about this passage is how much it has to do with community. We might be inclined to think of this in very individualistic terms. I have sin struggles. I have competing desires of the Spirit. I need to yield to the Spirit of God and let His Spirit grow in me so that I'll be more godly. That's true. But that's not the primary concern that Paul has in this passage. Paul is interested in the health and vitality of the community of faith in these verses. And so I want us to consider the Spirit and the church so he's told us how not to use our freedom, right, to indulge the desires of the flesh. But what's the alternative? What does he point us to instead of that? What's the right way to use our freedom? For that, look back at verse 13 where he started. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but what? Through love serve one another. He's looking at the community of faith, the local church. The opposite of indulging the desires of the flesh is not just being more holy. The opposite of indulging the desires of the flesh is to serve others in love. The one who benefits from the freedom that Christ has purchased for you is not just you, but your neighbor. The point of your freedom in Christ is not merely your own spiritual good, but the spiritual good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's building not just individuals for himself, he's building a people, a redeemed people for himself through Christ. Please don't miss this. 
at the heart of this very famous passage about the, the fruit of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit is concern for Christ's people, the local church. Our obedience to God's commands and our walking by the Spirit all have as their immediate point of application in these verses the health and vitality of life within the community of faith. Let's look at that together, how clear this is in these verses. So he, he frames the whole passage with community concerns. We saw at the very beginning just now, through love serve one another. Right? So at the very beginning of this passage, he's having us look outward to our brother and sister. And in verse 14, he quotes Jesus saying, the law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's interested not in just our own experience of God's grace, but our love of neighbors within the family of God. And then in verse 15, right after that, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Which implies that the, work, the works of the flesh and those desires of the flesh lead to bitterness and strife and, and devouring and biting and fighting among the people of God. And then if you look down to the very end of this passage, verse 26, the last thing he says after he's exhorted us again to keep in step with the Spirit, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He has in mind in this whole passage how we live as the people of God together. And the main body of this section about the war between our flesh and the spirit and, and the, the lists of vices and virtues that he gives us all have this same theme of community life, relationships in the church. Just look at those lists one more time. And consider how many of them, the, both the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, are outward-facing, others-oriented things. Verse 19, the works of the flesh, sexual immorality. Yes, that can be indulged in privately, but it's also usually against another person or involves another person. Enmity, that's literally being enemies with people. Strife, that's fighting against one another. Jealousy, it's kind of a possessiveness, a, a territorial spirit. Fits of anger, I guess you could be mad by yourself, but usually it's at somebody. Usually fits of anger express themselves against another person or other people. Rivalries, we're actually competing, trying to gain a leg up on somebody else. Dissensions, where we, are, we have bitter disagreements with one another that define us. Divisions. I'll stay over here with my people that I'm comfortable with. You stay over there with your people that you're comfortable with, and maybe we can just coexist and just agree to kind of not really talk to each other much or look at each other. Divisions. Envy. Boy, I wish I had the position that that person had. Boy, I wish I had the influence in the church's life that that other person has. Boy, I wish I looked a little bit more like that person. Sometimes this stuff gets real petty, but that's where we live sometimes, isn't it? These are vices that destroy biblical community. That's what the works of the flesh are. They're vices that destroy biblical community. And on the flip side of that, the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 and 23, uh, look how many of those are outward-facing, others-oriented kinds of things. Love. 
Who do you love? Others. He already told us, love your neighbor as yourself. Through love, serve others. Peace. You can be a peaceful person on your own, but that peace usually expresses itself in relationships. Somebody who perhaps even brokers peace among people who are in disagreement. Patience. I don't think he just means the willingness to wait for something. I think he means a slowness to anger, slowness to speak, quick to listen, James 1.19 kind of stuff, patient with others. Kindness. You have to have people to be kind to. Goodness expresses itself in acts of love and goodness to others. Faithfulness. This person is just always there. I can count on this person gentleness gentleness in relationships gentleness in words to to others gentleness even in dealing with hard things in the life of the church self-control yeah you can be a self-controlled person by yourself but that self-control often is applied to social situations where we're with other people and we need to restrain a thought or a word or an action so these the, the fruit of the spirit are virtues that build biblical community that's what Paul is after here. That's what the Spirit of God is after. He doesn't just want a bunch of individual Christians who are growing holier by themselves. He wants a community of re redeemed sinners growing together in love and holiness. The passage began with an exhortation to consider our neighbors. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. In other words, we should ask ourselves not, how can my freedom in Christ benefit me, but rather, how can I use my freedom in Christ to serve others? And then this whole discussion of uh, our flesh's desires and the Spirit's desires and the exhortation to walk by the Spirit in order to abstain from the desires of the flesh clearly has in view the health, not only of each of us as individual Christians, but of the community of faith as a dwelling place for the Spirit. So simply, the works of the flesh are vices that destroy community, and the fruit of the Spirit are virtues that build community. God wants us to see in these verses that when we live by the flesh, we starve, undermine, and destroy biblical community. But when we walk by the Spirit, we feed, cultivate, and develop biblical community. That is how a church grows in love, by walking by the Spirit. Here's another way I could say that. The presence and influence of God's Spirit in a church body is demonstrated by the quality of love among that community. I'm going to say that one more time. The presence and influence of God's spirit in a church body is demonstrated by the quality of love among that community. This is what it really means to be a spirit-led church. You might think of the continuation of gifts and certain expressions of that, and I don't mean to minimize that or diminish the importance of those things, but that's not really what it's about, to be led by the spirit. To be led by the spirit is to grow in our love for one another and to allow the Spirit to work these things out in our relationships in the church. To be a church that's led by the Spirit is to be a church whose love for one another is robust and increasing and is evident in acts of service and blessing, in words of honor and concern, in relationships of mutual care and accountability, and all the virtues birthed and cultivated by the Holy Spirit among His people. 
cross point. Isn't that the church you want to be? If it is, we've got some decisions to make. Will we prioritize church life over the many competing individual and family pursuits that can easily crowd out our schedules and control our lives? Will we engage in intentional, sometimes uncomfortable conversations about spiritual matters with fellow church members, about sin in our lives, about how God is teaching us, about ways we need help and grace in our struggles? Will we invest in relationships in the church across a spectrum of ages, life stages, demographics, and affinities? Will we spend meaningful time with people outside our usual group of friends for the sake of building community around the gospel and God's work in our lives? Will we extend mercy and forgiveness toward others within this body who have hurt us, or with whom we've disagreed, and seek to rebuild trust that's been damaged? That takes intentional effort. Will we earnestly pray, alone and together, for God's Spirit to produce His virtue within us, to grow among us a community of faith so united in heart and bound in love that the world will know that we are Christ's disciples? Let's pray together.